listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. So much of the time we think that in meditation or in this work that we're going to find the answers out there. That we'll find the answers in a book. That we'll find the answers from somebody other than who we are. A situation other than what we're in. And the simple truth is, you won't. It's only going to happen right here, right now, wherever that happens to be. And it's going to happen within you. There was a, I think it was ninth century Chinese mystic named Lin Chi who made this point very clearly when he said, if you meet a Buddha, along the path. Kill the Buddha. Now, he was not advocating murder of uh, enlightened beings. So, and it's constantly misinterpreted in really creative and crude ways. Um, And perhaps my way is just as creative and crude, but I think it's really important that we kind of start recognizing at the essence of what we're doing the essence of what we're doing is to uncover that which has always already been right here. It's been within us. And that's kind of hopeful. It means everyone in this room, and by extension, everybody outside of this room, has precisely all the ingredients necessary, all the ingredients necessary for awakening. Right now, you don't need anything extra. So when we say, if you find a Buddha along the way, kill the Buddha, what Lin Chi was pointing toward, I think is very, very valuable. And that is, you will never find it on the outside of who and what you are right now. Now, if you are in miserable straits right now, you've had horrible tragedy, let's say within this last week, perfect, perfect. If you have met up with amazing successes in the last week, perfect. Practice with that. Practice equally with your tragedy and with your glory. If you find that you had kind of an okay week, perfect. You can't escape the perfection of the opportunity that's presenting itself right now. You don't need more time on your cushion necessarily. You don't need to listen to a few more podcasts or read a few more books or listen to a few more of my talks. You don't need any of that. Okay? 
might be useful. But ultimately, we begin to uncover that precisely all of our Buddha nature, all of our wakefulness, if you will, is right here. What obscures that wakefulness, that Buddha nature, is the belief that someone or something has what we need. I'll say that again. What obscures our Buddha nature is the belief that someone or something has what we need. So what do we do? How do we, you know, it's like, okay, great, Mike, now what? Uh, sit still. Sit still. But in the sitting, in the stillness, rest. Truly rest. That's something we don't do very much. Even as we sleep, we get blasts of, uh, you know, delta wave patterns as we sleep. Okay, true rest, where our mind is just shut down. Okay, but for the most part, there's a little bit of, there's a, you know, with the exception of dreamless sleep, our minds are constantly chattering, constantly chattering. So when we sit still, what do we do? We watch that chattering mind. And in the watching of that chattering mind, we actually have taken a step away from the chatter. We can't watch it unless we've taken a step back. And in that step back, we uncover absolute infinite spaciousness. And that infinite spaciousness in the observing of our situation not being caught by the situation, but in observing the situation. That observing infinity offers us a tremendous chance, tremendous chance at equanimity. An unshakable calm in the face of the entire divine disaster that we call life. Be that when you sit. I once got to see uh, an exchange between a student and teacher that I'd never seen before. It was quite uh, quite remarkable. I, uh, this, this individual was getting very frustrated with his practice. And so he kind of confronted the leader of this particular uh, session. It's a seven-day Zen meditation retreat. And we were on like day three or four. And uh, there was a Dharma talk that was given where there was a Q&A that followed. And this guy just said, so what's the answer? And uh, my teacher said, well... There really are no answers. There are a lot of great questions, which I thought was, wow, that's really cool. But this guy got more and more frustrated. He kind of got more and more heated in his approach. And he said, what's needed for enlightenment? And without batting an eyelash, 
my teacher said, well, meet everything without leaning in, without pushing away. Meet everything just like that with total relaxation. That'll get you there. And it was like the bottom fell out of the room. Everybody's like, oh, oh, that's how we do it. We just meet everything that comes to in life and, and we don't go after it. We don't avoid it. We meet that with total relaxation. Huh. You know, I mean, literally, it was that. It was that funny. We had this. You know, these people uh, uh, were very, very committed to the to the work, and yet they. It's like they couldn't see past. <laughs> they couldn't see past their own noses when it came to the, the depth of practice. What was needed was nothing that we didn't already have. Say it again. It's nothing that we don't already have. But how we approach it becomes a practice that constantly needs to be honed. The minute we see things as they really, really are, the minute we see things and meet things with total relaxation, we're open to them. We're open to them. When we are open to all things, we don't get pushed around by them. Nor do we push them around. Now when I say things, I mean situations. I mean other people. I mean circumstances of any kind. Whether they're internal emotions or thoughts, feelings, or external events, disasters, Whatever. Can we be relaxed in the face of all that? Can we show up to any situation as radiant calm? No matter what. We don't have any urge to massage, to fix to manipulate. We don't have any need to run, to avoid. We just show up fully. And we meet that experience of showing up fully with something internal, a gift that we give internally, and that is total relaxation, total rest. If you've ever met anybody who shows up to life with a certain calm, you know, they can show up even, even when the kitchen gets very, very hot, there's a certain calm about them, man, they're, they're just magnetic. They're just magnetic. They're helpful. All right? So how does this show up in practice? How does this uh, calm show up in practice? Well, it's cultivated on the one hand we actually have a mental usually the first step is a mental recognition or a physical recognition of non-calm in our experience we can recognize it in our own experience of what is not calm okay and 
that's a huge step. If we can recognize, wow, that's really not calm at all in me. Um, that recognition of the non-calm comes from calm. I'll say that again. It's bizarre how this works. Just stick with me. The recognition of non-calm is calm. Okay? It's calm. We also call it uh, equanimity. It's another way of putting it. Kind of an acceptance of what is. And then, also, with that acceptance of what is, that relaxation, there's a tremendous flexibility that we have, that we can offer to any and all situations. And here's the key. Wisdom and compassion, you know how I talk about that all the time? I always say, you know, uh, I don't spend a lot of time talking about loving kindness. And it's not because that's not important, but I think that uh, Westerners have abused that to such an extent. Loving kindness has become this saccharine, sweet, uh, sentimental, oh, no, I just love everybody, which is a mask for actual deep attachment, usually. Kumbaya, my lord, kumbaya can also mean, you know, screw this administration. You know what I mean? So, so we, can, <laughs> we can, we have to be very, very careful. Um, I, just, I just know that, that I always speak about wisdom and I always speak about compassion, but neither wisdom nor compassion can show up in any meaningful way unless we are able to embody, embody, this idea of relaxation, this idea of equanimity. Equanimity is trust. It's trust in the wisdom that all things are connected, that all things are temporary, that all things are ultimately empty. It's the compassion that arises and comes from that wisdom, as that wisdom meets the world, the activity that is born is compassionate. And it's not just compassion for others. It's compassion for ourselves. It's compassion for the situations that show up. It's compassion for those who trespass against us, where we can forgive our trespasses. We get to a point where we recognize the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Besides throwing the 23rd Psalm there for anybody who's keeping <laughs> score at home. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not There's nothing needed. It's all right here. We get to lie down in green pastures and rest. And in that rest, the wisdom and compassion build. Okay? And they inform everything that we do. But they don't manifest without a body. Just like the one you have. Warts and all. They don't show up without a body that is at rest. Deep down 
that is at rest, deep down that is okay with the way things are. If deep down any of us is okay with the way things are, if we are okay with the way things are, we can at that point be undivided in our approach to all parts of life. And when we are undivided, we then become agents of peace. And only then, only then are we agents of peace. When we're no longer divided, we're no longer in opposition to anything else. We are not positional because we are no longer ensconced or trapped by personal beliefs. Convictions, we're no longer trapped by them. We're no longer trapped by our thoughts. We're no longer trapped by the emotions that show up when our mind meets our body. When our thoughts, our convictions meet our body, emotions are right. We're no longer trapped or caught by that. We're not caught at all. As a matter of fact, in this state of rest, where wisdom and compassion are abounding, we actually are becoming the change we wish to see in the world. I know this, I'm filling this entire talk with tons of really kind of hackneyed expressions here. Dial a cliche, uh, but, <laughs> but it's so profound and so rich and so true if we just kind of take a step back and we recognize if there is peace, even for a moment, even for a moment, there is the fertile soil where awakening can bloom. I would actually say, go so far as to say, that awakening cannot bloom if there isn't calm. If there's always busy, there is, in essence, usually always some kind of avoidance that's going on. If there is always lethargy, there's usually always some kind of avoidance that's going on. This is the opposite move. This work that we're doing, where we face everything and avoid nothing, where we don't reach in and we don't avoid and we meet all things with total relaxation, this is the answer that most of you are probably really concerned about uncovering in yourselves. So practice this. Practice this uh, not only on your way home, but during this holiday season when someone takes your parking place that you've been waiting for. Start there. Okay? Start small. Watch your resistance patterns come up the minute somebody cuts in line or the minute somebody abuses somebody that you think does not deserve their abuse. You know? Watch, watch your resistance. And then, once you're calm, respond from the place that recognizes they are me. Us is them.
we're all one. React from that place. Be totally relaxed as you do it. And you are Buddha. You're not a Buddhist, you're Buddha. Go Buddha. <laughs> Questions? Michael, there's an expression that I, I, I think I've heard you use, and I know Ajashanti does, which is, and I think it's known as desirable, and it's hair on fire. Yes. This seems so far from what you, you were just talking about. Well, where, where does it fit into Hair on fire. Meditate as if your hair was on fire. Calm and peace. Yes. Yes. Meditating as if your hair was on fire, um, it's easy for me to say. <laughs> Not a lot of fuel. Not a lot of product. <laughs> Meditate as if your head is on fire, I think, is... is uh, you have to have steel in this practice. No wussies allowed. This is serious business. Okay? Your head's on fire. You're in a different space than if it's... If this is about relaxation, you're in the wrong place. I have nothing to teach you. If this is about relax, if, if this is about feeling good, I have nothing to teach you. And my, my sense is Adya would probably say the same thing. Um... If you're interested in finding something out, gaining a new intellectual understanding, you're wasting time. Get out. If you're going to meditate, meditate as if it matters. Okay? So that's kind of, that's kind of where it goes. Now, in addition to having steel, you also need to have a degree of softness and flexibility. Okay? And equanimity allows for that softness and flexibility to develop. It also allows for that softness and flexibility to meet a noggin that's on fire with total peace. Okay? So they interrelate in that the head, the head meditating, is it, that was actually, I think, uh, Katagiri Roshi, I think you uh, said that one. And, and it, it was really just a, a, a warning to his students. Get serious. You, you know you're going to die. All right? You're going to die, so let's, let's get going here. All righty? On the other hand, what is he saying? What's the end point? Or not end point. I hate to use that term. But what's, what, is, what is that let's get serious about? It's about uncovering that peace whether your head's on fire or not it's always something whether it's you guys I don't know if you know the uh, the infinite smile lore about the coffee pot down at Mount Madonna <laughs> if you've heard about this there's a group of us down there for a weekend retreat and we're all 
just plugged in. Oh, this is going to be so great. Well, you know, everything's quiet and peaceful and so forth. <laughs> and uh, we, we decided, addicts that we are, we decided, no, let's have coffee. Yeah, that'll be good. <laughs> and this machine was making you know, this horrible sound for hours and hours. And so, like, all through the meditation, people are going, you know. So it's always something, whether it's a, a you know, uh, your head is on fire or whether the coffee machine is making noise or the person next to you is, you know, snoring during zazen or whatever. It's always something. So can you develop that peace, that equanimity, no matter what? No matter what? <laughs> yeah. When, you're, uh, when feelings come up, like anger, sadness, and, and my body. Yeah. Oh, I think... I think Well, I think if you're actually feeling any emotion that comes up during uh, meditation, if you're actually feeling it, you are observing it. You're not getting caught by it. You're actually feeling it. And there's a difference between feeling it and getting caught by it. Yeah, I understand. All right? So that goes back to what uh, my, my teacher was telling this student. The answer is meet whatever comes up without going after it and getting caught by it or without avoiding it and trying to get caught by something else. Just meet it with total relaxation. Right? I don't necessarily feel calm while I'm feeling all the feelings, though. No, and, and that's, why, that's why this is called practice. It takes, it takes practice. That in you which is aware of the feeling is totally calm. The awareness of the feeling is totally calm. It's forever calm. It can't be moved. It is equanimity. And the more we let that in, is the more it, the more it kind of works through us in a mysterious way. It works through us in that it, it, it actually begins to kind of coat and infuse our experience with a, just a different energy. Yeah. How do we become agents of peace if people are not receptive to our message? It's not contingent or dependent on them. Your peace. Your peace is not contingent or dependent on them. And the minute it is, is the minute you give birth to war. So what we do is we meet those people who totally disagree with us with total relaxation with total peace and whether they choose to come to our side or makes no difference because we don't have a side we are peace okay so the ego loves this because the ego wants that war actually if it doesn't have that war or it can't cloak war as peace it can't turn peace into an actual fight it has nowhere to go so what we do is when people are resisting, if you will, if they're, they're resisting our offering, whatever it is, 
what do we do? We practice with that. We practice with their resistance. We see how it arises within us. We observe that. Okay? And we meet it with total relaxation. And then we make a move. Does that kind of make sense? I can't read your face right now. It looks like... <laughs> yeah? So we can't, we can't, otherwise, otherwise what we do is we just engage, literally, in a life that's about an egoic negotiation. And if our life is confined to that or limited to that, we, we, we do what's called suffering. And the Buddha taught about that, suffering, and the end to suffering. And the end to suffering is the minute we can meet it with total relaxation without getting caught by it and without avoiding it just be right there with it and that ends the suffering do you want me to explain how it ends the suffering mm -hmm. okay it ends the suffering because the minute we can actually witness or observe pain or negativity in our experience the minute any of us can do that we can go whoa well there's some there's some negativity we have diminished the intensity of that negativity. And the more we can hold the light of that presence on the negativity, the less grip it has. The more we, the more we disidentify from it, the less a part of us it can become. The fewer the hooks. The hooks literally straighten and it kind of falls away. Suddenly there is peace. We're not divided. We're absolutely all here. And it doesn't mean we avoid participating. It means we engage totally, but we engage from a totally and wholly different stance. One that's inclusive as opposed to dual, dualistic. Great question. Thank you. Yeah. Um, you mentioned trespassers. <clears throat> oh, when I was doing my biblical thing there? <laughs> yeah. I find that trespassers are sort of great dharma doors because I feel like somebody does something and steps right on my ego's toe. So I'm just like, so what? And how can you? And how dare you? And I heard people say that um, it's things that you don't like about yourself, others do them, that gets your ego up and your other arms. Is that true? Is that, does that resonate? That it's with the teaching? With the teaching, that's something that's in me that gets triggered by somebody else? Oh, absolutely. 100%, yes. In other words, some, the, the, that which you see in another that you don't like, presumably, presumably, is also something that you don't ever want to see in yourself, right? Now, as a defense mechanism, we have names for it. As a defense mechanism, it's projection. Let's say, or you could have reaction formation, or you could have repression, or you could have, I mean, they're all sorts, right? Um, fancy names that are basically all talking about a very simple uh, truth according to the Dharma. And that is, we are all aspects of the same whole. Our minds perceive things otherwise. Our minds perceive atomization and separation. Therefore, we live lives in a really one-sided way. 
we live lives that are all about me, mine, and that we live somewhere in here behind a face. That there is an in here and an out there, right? But what's real is that that is true, that there is an in here and an out there. That's true. But there's also a different perspective, and equanimity can actually show us a much broader, much wider, much deeper perspective. And that is that while, yes, we are atomized, we are individual, we are also unified, collective, whole. So being able to surf between those two realities is what a bodhisattva does, is what an enlightened being does. An enlightened being, to to flip this a bit, an enlightened being does not stay in the unity. That's not an enlightened being. That's somebody who's now avoiding the dualism. Okay? So, yes, when you see someone else that is is showing up in some way that like gets to you, it is the perfect Dharma door. Because what it's doing is it's helping you realize the things you need to let go of, the things that hook you. It's a gift. The next time somebody really, really pisses you off, nine bows to them. Well, don't do nine bows. That would be embarrassing, but you get the idea. Nine bows to that person. Nine bows to that situation. I think I saw it. Yes. Yes. <clears throat> How does, where, where does passion and an, having an opinion come in? Because I'm hearing a lot of Switzerland. And, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm on board with that, but I, I just think, where does that come? Where does having a strong sense about a situation or... It fits in perfectly fits in perfectly, as long as you don't get caught by it. Okay? If you're caught by your opinion, it's an instrument of torture for you and for somebody else. If you're caught by your passion, caught by, caught by, you know, not like, not like, you know, ooh, I like that, but like, you know? If you're caught by your passion, it's an instrument of torture. Now, does that mean you can't live an incredibly passionate, engaged life filled with opinions? Of course you can. Of course you can. This teaching actually helps you do that in a way that allows for a, this, a significant adjustment in all of those relationships and by relationships, I mean every single one of those opinions and convictions and passions that you have, your relationship to each one of those begins to change the more that stillness is brought into your experience. And that miraculously means that each one of those, each one of those feelings that you have is enlivened with something that is far broader than an egoic negotiation. An egoic passion is different than a surrendered passion. A surrendered opinion. So you're leaving a space for something more than what you're coming into. You 
are, you're not only leaving a space for something more, you're letting that something more infuse and fill the space left by ego, which is small. So it's the practice really, really actually helps us, helps us to not only soften, but deepen. <laughs> Just because you sit in meditation, let's say you were to have like, you know, the big bang enlightenment experience, like, you know, and everything. It's like Iris is glowing, you know, and floating. Off your, you know, that would not mean that suddenly you wouldn't care. That you would suddenly, like, you know, oh, that's racist. No big deal. <laughs> you know, that's just not where it goes. It's you begin to understand what's at the core of someone's racism, someone's sexism, someone, whatever ism you want, right? And instead of looking at them as the enemy, you look at them as someone that actually is within you. And they need attention. They need attention. They need care. They need compassion. Not to fade, hide, fix, or anything. But they need your attention. Because they're still catching you. And if they're still catching you, you're still at war with them. And if you're still at war with them, you're not an agent of peace. An agent of peace shines light. And that's what gets rid of darkness. More darkness doesn't. Yeah. Thank you.